Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars rewards. That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer. Like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate. say that it will now take the lead in investigating sex abuse allegations against the late Sir Jimmy Savile as more women come forward claiming to have been assaulted by the television presenter. Who's your best pal, Tony? Oh, no, Desmond. He's not? He no, he's not. Yeah, that's me. Because he's a married man? Okay. Yes, you do. Oh. Well, no. I'm just squashing. <laughs> not until you say me. Now, me, when I stand in front of the table and St. Peter's there, he says, you are not coming in. Uh, and I'll say, well, why not? And they say, because you're a villain. And, and he'll show me the debit side. And I say, hang about. And I'll show him the credit side. And he does that mean anything? And if he says, that means nothing, then I'll threaten to break his fingers. What does she do with the cable, boys? <laughs> and I didn't want to. And he promised me that if I gave him oral sex, that he would arrange for me and my friends having sex 
was the very, very first in the whole world to run a dance to record. <laughs> you used to be a wrestler, didn't you? Uh, I need a lamp. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I'm feared in every girls' school in this country. Hello, and welcome once again to the Deathcast. I'm your host, best-selling author, Ian Totten. I'd like to thank you for joining me on this special day before Easter edition as we continue to take a look at the life and crimes of Sir Jimmy Seville, OBE. Before we get into it, of course, we have our normal plugs. If you'd like to follow either me or the show on social media, that would be Facebook, Instagram, MeWe, YouTube. Just search for either Ian Totten Author or The Deathcast. If you'd like to follow me on Twitter, just search Corpse Creek Publishing. If you're interested in signing up for the mailing list or making a donation to the show, go to CorpseCreekPublishing.com. Uh, you can click the sign up button, get on the mailing list, or click on the donate button. Buy me a cup of coffee or a pack of smokes. If you are interested in becoming a Patreon member of the show, just go to tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon. That's tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon. You can get started for as little as $2 a month. There's also a $5 tier. And if I can get five Patreon members to sign up by the end of May, I've got a special episode planned that I will drop. It's already been recorded. Those of you debating whether or not to sign up for the Patreon, it's pretty simple. It costs money to drop this show on all the various podcast apps and sites out there. So that's really what the Patreon is about. It's not about putting money in my pocket. It's about trying to help offset the cost of this show. So again, that's tinyurl.com backslash DC Patreon. If you're interested in finding any of my books, you can go to tinyurl.com backslash underscore books. I'd like to thank everybody who has jumped on my morbid bandwagon the last couple of weeks. Uh, specifically, uh, private investigator Ed Opperman, who had me on his show a few weeks back to discuss Jimmy Seville. This show has absolutely exploded in terms of listeners, uh, and I'm really excited and kind of overwhelmed and humbled by this We actually were up in the top 200 of true crime podcasts on Apple Podcasts last week. So for everyone who's listening, thank you so much. If you like the show, please subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Don't forget to leave a five-star review. They really do help with getting the show out there to more people. And... If you leave a written five-star review, you'll get it read on the air. All right, that is it for the plugs and all of that nonsense. Get yourself something to drink. Find a nice comfy chair. Sit back and relax. I've got my coffee. I've got my cigarettes. Let's go into the crypt. As we left off last week, Seville is really 
going towards that superstardom that he has been craving and the acceptance of the establishment. The 60s are drawing to a close. It's just about to be 1970. He not only is hosting massively popular shows on BBC television, but now he has been brought in to do a program on BBC Radio 1, which was called Seville's Travels, which basically was Seville traveling around the countryside interviewing everyday people. This not only won him popularity with the masses at large, as they saw Seville as their guy. As I've said in other episodes, he was referred to collectively as our Jimmy. And this was really cementing that image in the public consciousness. In addition to this, he's been doing work with charities for a year or two now, like he'd always been doing it, but he's really doubling down on it, spending time in hospitals such as Broadmoor and G- Leeds General Infirmary. He's also brought this over into his Seville's travel program where he's pushing a girl for charity 13 miles, you know, a young girl who's in a wheelchair, constantly plugging the charity work that he is doing almost in every public appearance in some way, shape, or form. Well, at the same time he's doing this, he's still doing the Jimmy Seville self-promotion. And people would say he was this, he was that, he was a good man, he was a bad man. Regardless of any of that, there was one thing that Seville surpassed everyone at, and that was promoting Jimmy Seville. I really don't believe there's ever been anybody before or since who has been a master at self-promotion like Seville was. Because everything that he did, whether it was appearances for, you know, a Cracker Factory opening or a charity event or his radio program, everything all centered at the end of the day around him, the image he had built of himself and getting that out there to the masses. He attracted crowds pretty much wherever he went. You can find archival footage of him online, and you'll see exactly what I mean. This skinny, bleach-blonde-haired man in a track suit, or as they call it in Britain, a shell suit. Anywhere he goes, he's got massive crowds around him. Seville ascribed this to his ability to mass-hypnotize people. Yes, you did hear me right. Jimmy Seville claimed to be a hypnotist and, in fact, stated that he was told by a very famous British hypnotist named Yosef Karma that he had a special gift that not even Karma possessed, and that was the ability to mass-hypnotize people. Whether Seville actually possessed this or not, I don't know. But what is known, and you can find a lot of documentation about this, people that spent any amount of time around Seville found themselves lulled by 
his tone of voice, his cadence, whether or not this was actually hypnotism or not, I'm not going to speculate on. But he had a gift where he was able to get people to be not only massively comfortable around him, but get them to do the things that he wanted without telling them as much. And I think that's a pretty good definition of hypnotism. This didn't just, you know, involve individuals in his you know, personal life. It also, you know, the, the public. They believed in what he was selling. And so did the girls that he encountered. You know, I, I have to keep reemphasizing this, that not everybody who was a victim of Seville was an unwilling participant in the things that he was doing. I don't know if that makes him so much of a hypnotist as it does just an expert salesman. Because that is, in reality, what Seville was. He was just the greatest salesman that you could possibly be. Anything that he attached his name to drew massive attention. Any appearance that he made drew massive attention. And he did this all the while bragging about the things that he was doing, whether it was how much money he was making. He would often you know, tell reporters that, you know, the money he was making for making this appearance at, you know, the opening of a store or whatever it was, was going to charity. The reason for this was twofold. Seville was making a lot of money at this point, but it also helped continue to cast him in that perfect public light and it kept people from questioning his lifestyle because as I've talked about Seville never stayed put in one place for very long he was constantly on the move and as the 70s really start rolling along he's got the success of his show Seville's Travels he buys a camper van a Mercedes with a large bed in the back, you know, bedecked to show some form of opulence, and it's out of this vehicle that he begins living out of as he transverses the country. Now, there will be other, and there have been other campers that he had set up in various areas throughout the country, but this van is his first known rolling home on wheels. And it's out of this van that a lot of his abuses are going to take place. Now, I've read things that state from 1967 up until roughly around 1979 was the peak of Seville's abuse. And I can believe that because at this point he is, like I said, he's going towards that superstar status. But as the decade progresses, you will see, he goes from beyond being just a superstar, he becomes a megastar in Great Britain. And with that megastardom, obviously, people flock to him. He has a lot of opportunities to do things that polite society would frown upon. Things he'd been doing for, at this point, well over a decade. Before we transverse into the 70s, though, just a couple of things that happened as 1969 wrapped up. 
Seville was the first civilian presented with a Marine Commando Green Beret, which Seville ended up being buried with. So, on top of everything else, he was an honorary Green Beret. In September of that year, he emceed a Radio 1 program called Speakeasy, which was part of BBC Radio 1's religious broadcasting department. And basically, it was a, the BBC's way of asserting the outraged individuals within the society who thought that the rock and roll that they were peddling was morally corrupting their children. Again, I've talked about in other episodes how Seville always seemed to slip in something about his religious beliefs and how he was a strong Catholic and how the good that he did was outweighing the bad that he did. This is the first time on a national level that he brings the idea of his religion to the masses. He'd been doing it in bits and spurts throughout the years, but now he's really got a vehicle to push his religious beliefs on the teen youth of the nation. Speakeasy covered a variety of topics, whether it was censorship, drugs, alcohol, teenage marriage, teenage sex. And again, you see, that's something that Seville likes to come back to discussing is sex, specifically premarital sex. Remember, he's a Roman Catholic. The Roman Catholic Church looks down upon premarital sex. And in one program where they were discussing birth control, Seville stated, I have never given anyone a kid in my life, and I'm sure that if I was having it off and the Pope said I had committed a sin by not producing offspring, I would say I'd wait to appear before our Lord because I don't think he'd be that unreasonable. And Seville was able to get away with saying these kinds of things when many others were not able to talk, whether it was in veiled suggestions or openly, about their escapades. And this was during a time and in a country where any talk of sex was considered a scandalous affair, to say the least. I mean, even in our society today, you look at it and there are people who just are over-sexualized and throwing it in your face constantly, and then you have other people who are tight-lipped and don't say a word. Seville walked that fine line between both. He said just enough that you knew he was doing things, but not enough to enrage the establishment or the consciousness of the country at large. Seville didn't just talk about sex on the program, however. He used it as a vehicle to bring more high-profile and influential people inside of his sphere of influence. Again, we've talked about it ad nauseum, the idea that Seville liked to build layers of protection around himself wherever it was that he happened to be in the country at the time. Speakeasy was no different in that regard. He had defense ministers on his show. He had 
party chairman for parliament on the show, and he would do this before, you know, general elections and things of that nature. So he was ingraining that himself to these people because these people obviously want to get reelected, and Seville is giving them a free avenue to promote themselves. He was able to get away with asking them questions that humanized them in some fashion that other individuals might not be able to ask them. A lot of these questions obviously revolved around sex. All of this led the BBC to increasingly entrust Seville with more and larger projects such as the television show on BBC Two, Ten Years of What, which was a look back at the 1960s. And on this show, Seville interviewed individuals who had been important within British society as well as made an impact on British life. Some of these include Cardinal Heenan, who was the Archbishop of Westminster, Enoch Powell, who was the Secretary of Health at a period of time in the 60s, as well as a member of Parliament, Arnold Schlesinger, who was an aide to President Kennedy. The list goes on and on, and the people at the BBC, some of them were skeptical, and once again, Seville proved them wrong, as the show, while not a smashing success, was nevertheless successful. This raised Seville's stock within the BBC. A profile piece on Seville in the magazine Listener later stated, the way he conducted himself in BBC TV's review of the decade persuaded many of those within television who had dismissed him as a mere fairground huckster that he had a keen understanding of current affairs, and in speakeasy, his capacity to grasp the most esoteric of subjects and conduct discussions with some high-powered intellects betokens an active brain under the cloth and bells. You can see from that statement that Seville was something of a chameleon, and that he was able to transverse between social and economic class and commoners and individuals of importance and this is part of his appeal to people he's really an everyman who goes so much further than every man intermingled with all of this are the stories that would come out in later years regarding you know alleged assaults as well as Seville's own recounting of events and then there are women who came forward who stated that they were underage they went along with what he wanted because of who he was and what he could give them or what they perceived he could give them but in later years they realized that what he did was criminal and then you have individuals who threw out stories of one of the best known individuals in Britain basically attempting to rape them on the streets. Right around this time that Seville is doing Speakeasy and Ten Years of What, 
He's alleged to have pulled up alongside a 19-year-old woman and offered her a ride, and which she readily accepted upon seeing who he was. Seville apparently drove this young woman back to his camper, at which point he attempted to rape her before telling her to take a souvenir, which was a crucifix, and telling her to get out of his camper. This is one of those stories that, at least to me, is absolutely unbelievable. And the reason it is unbelievable is, again, Seville is one of the most well-known, if not the most well-known faces in Great Britain at this period of time, and the idea that he would openly, on a crowded public street, pick up a woman and then attempt to rape her, that loses a little bit of credibility. People would definitely have seen and remembered a man driving a Rolls Royce picking up a 19-year-old woman in broad daylight on a crowded city street. Seville, as I understand him, was much more low-key when he actually went out and found himself a partner, be they willing or not, than this story suggests. He was not about to risk everything that he had by going out and so blatantly committing an assault. This falls into the category of stories of him raping and molesting boys in rooms filled with people who were watching and laughing. As was demonstrated last week, Seville was much more likely to get those in power to be accomplices in his crimes than he was to go out and commit an assault like this. He was also known to frequent prostitutes, specifically in the Leeds area. Things that can be you know, ascribed and written away as just having a bit of fun or, in the case of prostitutes, you know, can be conducted discreetly. Which I think is an important aspect of Jimmy Seville that's often overlooked. He might talk a good game about the things that he was getting into, but he never named names. And beyond a few people who came forward to the police that were dismissed... Nobody ever came forward during his lifetime, really. We will get back into this discussion in just a moment. From Ian Totten, best-selling author of The House of Silver Dolls, The Blood Gotch Trilogy, and The Throwaway Girls of Olympia, comes Maggie, a book which New York Times best-selling author Keith Elliott Greenberg has called a classic detective story, well-crafted, and a supernatural vortex. Maggie, the name was burned into Lieutenant Carl Jablonski's mind like a brand and had been since the night of the fire. He doubted he would ever forget that night or how she had danced in the flames of her burning home. Maggie, 
Who was she and why did no one in Kaya's Crossing seem interested in talking about her or her family? These were questions without answers. Quandaries that drove Carl on as he explored the darkest of the town's secrets, desperate to unravel the knots that tied everything together. Maggie! Carl felt haunted by a visage, even as the local reporter, George Murphy, told them of the blood-soaked history that lay along their path, and the horrors that it held. None of it seemed real, and yet it was. The sacrifices, the screams, the pact with the nameless ones, and the hell that she had endured. Maggie! Hers was a crime begging to be solved, and he and George are the only ones with enough heart to do it. The real question is, will they survive long enough to do it? Maggie, available 11, 30, 2021, in paperback and hardcover. Ebook pre-orders are now available at Amazon.com. Only from Corpse Creek Publishing. And we are back. You can find that book, Maggie, at tinyurl.com backslash Maggie book. As we were discussing in you know, one of the tales that has come out since Seville's passing about his supposed assault on a 19-year-old basically in broad daylight in a crowded downtown and how it was very unlikely that Seville would perpetrate such a crime given how high profile he was, how easily he could obtain companionship, his proclivity for engaging the services of prostitutes, etc. Seville did engage in assaults that were unwanted. There are many, many believable tales of women coming to his caravan and Seville getting them inside and once inside locking the door and leaping upon them. And people knew about these assaults, although not the circumstances of them. There have been numerous interviews done throughout the years since his passing of individuals who saw Seville's caravan, quote-unquote, rocking and knowing that he was in there with a young woman whether they knew their age or not is unknown but because of this type of stuff seeing his van rocking all of the young girls around Seville people in the BBC began talking in the hushed corridors of broadcasting house about him and it was one of those things that they they knew about it, but they didn't go to anybody with it because they feared what might happen to them should they kill the golden goose that's laying the golden eggs. The golden goose in this regard being Seville. Because Seville was guaranteed money at this point. And when, at the end of the day, that's what everything comes down to. You see a lot of people on internet chat boards and... YouTube videos, things of that nature. You know, if people knew about this, why didn't they say something? Money. 
It's as simple as that. Back then, and even still to this day, if you go forward to your employers about somebody who is making a lot of money for your corporation with accusations of any type of sexual impropriety, there's a very good chance that you're the one who's going to face consequences, not that individual. Back during the 60s and 70s, it was a guarantee that nothing was going to happen, especially with a star of Seville's caliber. And I've tried to impress upon the American public just how big a star Jimmy Seville was. I've called him Dick Clark on steroids. It might be fair to state that he was of a rarefied air. He was a rock star who didn't play any instruments, but he was a rock star nonetheless. But he was the establishment's rock star. Everything he touched turned to gold. Anywhere he went, dollar signs appeared. And the people high up in the BBC understood and knew this and also knew that they needed to protect him no matter what. Now, whether this is something that was openly stated in boardrooms or in offices is unknown, but it was something that was known throughout the BBC that Seville is the Pied Piper, the chosen one, and that you don't cut off your nose to spite your face if we do something such as fire Jimmy Seville, we're going to be cutting our own throat because he was so extremely popular and his popularity continued to grow as the years went on. So revered was Seville that in January of 1970, he was granted an appearance on the television program, This Is Your Life. This Is Your Life was a program that would surprise people by, you know, stepping out of parades to, you know, ambush them or while they were walking down the street and it was invariably somebody who was important and influential. I believe there was even a American program under the same title and what they would do is they would go over your life and you would hear a voice talking you know, singing your praises before that individual was revealed. And it was considered to be a fairly big honor to be gifted with an appearance on This Is Your Life. They gave you a book commemorating the entire thing. For Seville, it, this was a, another brick in the wall that he was building that he was and had been accepted by not only society but the establishment and a lot of this acceptance stemmed from the fact that he parlayed his celebrity into helping others. Seville liked to state that he gave more than half of his yearly earnings to charity and this wasn't something that he stated once or twice during his lifetime. He stated this continuously throughout the years to really anybody who would listen that, look how great a guy I am. I'm making 
all of this money, but most of that goes to charity because I don't need that much to live on. Some people might be wondering how can that be so. Well, remember how big a star Seville was. And even at this point, 1970, he is a massive star. If he went into a place, more likely than not, he did not have to pay for his own meals. They were being comped to him because just having a celebrity of the caliber of Jimmy Seville in your establishment was seen as not only an honor, but it would also result in sales in the future from others because a lot of these places would, would take pictures of Seville at their restaurant and then hang it up on the wall to let customers know, look how good we are, even Jimmy Seville comes in and eats here. 1970 ends and 1971 rolls around and the first of many scandals to rock the BBC, particularly in regards to pop culture, occurs. And it specifically is surrounding the Top of the Pops program of which Seville was one of the presenters. The way Top of the Pops worked was it was almost like a nightclub where if you were young and pretty or handsome and dressed in the fashion that they wanted, you would be allowed to come onto the show and be part of the studio audience slash dancers. Now a number of these individuals, particularly the girls, were underage and tried to present themselves as being of age. The BBC up until this point pretty much had a if you're over 14 and you can prove it you can come in mentality going on and unfortunately a lot of the young people who came into the show saw that being on this show was their way to becoming a star this is because some members of the audience over the years had gone on to bigger things. I believe a few of the dancers had gone on to become singers of some level of success. But really these were star-struck kids who wanted to be around the individuals that they idolized and saw this you know, opportunity to be on this show as not only a way to be around these individuals, but also possibly become famous themselves. In reality, these young women were coming on to the show. A lot of them were dressed provocatively, and that's not a, an excuse for what happened to them, but there were around, you know, famous, virile individuals, and many of them did end up in these stars' beds. So the scandal began slowly with the revelation of payola, which was record companies paying either disc jockeys or the station itself to pay specific records in order for that record to become a hit. It became known as the payola scandal, and it was a huge deal, which, you know, I cannot grasp 
why it was such a big deal because they had been openly doing this during the 1960s. A good example is when Seville started as a radio DJ and he had his program that specifically promoted Warner Brothers artists in the UK. That would be the DECA radio programs. And this wasn't just a scandal in the UK. The U US also had a payola scandal where in it was eventually decided that if a record company did this, then that needed to be dis disclosed to the listening audience as paid airtime. I believe Great Britain was the same way, you know, they decided that if you're going to do this, it has to be declared as paid airtime. You know, they cited improprieties and underhanded practices. Reality of it is that this was just the government's way of letting it be known that if money's changing hands, we want our cut of it in forms of taxes. And I say that because payola still goes on in the music industry with radio stations. Now, though, instead of giving the disc jockeys money or the radio stations money, the record company will invite them to gala events or offer them trips and things of that nature. But at this period of time, 1970, 1971, it was a huge scandal, and all of the radio stations in Britain were reeling from these revelations. Add into this the revelations that were about to come concerning Top of the Pops. As I discussed a few moments ago, a lot of these young women who were going to Top of the Pops and getting in as dancers were having sex with the DJs who were presenting the show as well as with the rock stars who were performing on the show. One of these young girls by the name of Claire McAlpine ended up overdosing in beginning part of 1971. She was 15 years old. She was found by her mother with a bottle of empty sleeping pills next to her and a red leather-bound diary. And according to McAlpine's mother, Vera, inside of this diary, her daughter detailed her sexual escapades with various DJs and rock stars. News of the World, which was a tabloid newspaper in Great Britain, was the first to break this story. And again, it sent shockwaves throughout both the BBC and the music industry because... It was a situation of, we know this stuff is going on, but as long as nobody says anything about it or nothing untoward comes out, we don't know anything. And the death of Claire McAlpine, who danced on the show under the name of Samantha Claire, may never have become known were it not for the payola scandal, which the News of the World was the first to break. And part of the payola scandal involved them revealing that what they called pluggers, who were really promotions men for these record companies, were enticing various disc jockeys and show producers 
to play their records, be it through money or bringing them to parties where mass amounts of drugs and narcotics were taken and supposedly orgies took place involving call girls. The news of the world kept digging into the story of Paola, and in doing so, they discovered some things about Top of the Pops that led to the revelations concerning Claire. When they began investigating Top of the Pops, they were eventually led to a man by the name of Harry Goodwin, who was the in-house photographer for the show. Now, Goodwin was one of Seville's friends from back in the days of working for Bill Benny, who, if you will remember, was the pro wrestler turned godfather of Manchester. Now, Benny is conceived as something of an icon in the pop music industry because of his work on top of the pops and the photographs he took. However, Goodwin was doing other things at Top of the Pops that were largely brushed under the rug in the years since the revelations came to light. Undercover reporters recorded Goodwin telling a musician about how he was taking pornographic pictures of the young girls who were appearing on the program. They also recorded Goodwin telling a rock star that he was making pornographic videos involving some of these young women and showing them to people. According to the recorded conversation, Goodwin stated to this star who was interested in purchasing one of the films, you're not having it because name redacted is one of my best customers and he has not seen this yet he will go mad when he sees this interestingly goodwin was found not to be in possession of any of the offending materials when police came to look inside of all his lockers however he let it slip during the interview where he stated that nothing was found, that he had, in fact, been tipped off by a friend that this raid was forthcoming. So right after the revelations concerning Top of the Pops came out in News of the World, Claire McAlpine, who was 15 years old, wound up dead. This was about two weeks after the interview with Goodwin was revealed. According to Claire's mother, Vera, she had read her daughter's diary about a month beforehand and was appalled by what she discovered within, namely that her daughter had been sleeping with one DJ from BBC's radio programs, but also that she had been sleeping with one of the presenters from Top of the Pops. And upon learning this information, she forbade her daughter from appearing on Top of the Pops again. There are two versions of the story regarding why Claire McAlpine took her own life. One is that she was so shamed by the things that she had done 
that she took the sleeping pills, although this is contradicted by the fact that people who knew Claire McAlpine from those days were, went on the record, although their names were redacted at the time because of their ages, and told reporters that she had flat out stated that all she wants to do is be on TV, and if that means that she has to sleep with the men presenting the television, then that is what she is willing to do. The other version of the story is that when her mother forbade her from appearing on television again, she was so distraught after losing the one thing in life that she wanted that she decided she could no longer continue on with living and thus took her life. Out of all this, there were inquiries launched both internally by the BBC as well as by Scotland Yard, and it's interesting to note that Jimmy Seville, out of everybody involved with the presenting side of Top of the Pops, made appearances in public to try and assuage the opinion of people regarding the show. And in doing this, he pretty much came out and said that, yeah, I'm having sex with underage girls, or at least girls who are not 18. Remember, the age of consent in Britain at this time was 16, and stating he had many girlfriends, and he counts them and their parents among his friends. In an article with the Daily Express, he stated, Many a time I have dated a good-looking girl I've met on the show, but what I say to them is, ask your folks if I can come around for tea. I much prefer being with a family with a pretty girl in the center than a session in the back of my car. For one thing, you can't see how pretty the girl is in the back of my car. When discussing the show, Seville tried to present it as a family-type atmosphere. And discussing the women, he stated that 19 and 20 year olds with some experience of the world may look at me as a sexual object, but the younger ones, the 14 to 16 year olds, don't even think about sex. In fact, they would be most offended if you suggested anything sexual to them. In this same article, he also stated, I've quote unquote, met young crumpet that would knock your eyes out. 14 year old girls with bodies on them like Gina Lollabrigia. I love them, but not in the going to bed sense. Seville also said in this article that these young girls would go to great lengths to find out where he lived so that they could camp out on his front stoop. Some people have dismissed this notion as Seville simply trying to tell the world what he was doing while trying to make it seem wholesome and you know, a wink, wink, nod, nod, this is what I'm doing, but look, they're coming to me, and people have stated in various chat rooms and other places that this is probably not the case. These girls didn't come to Seville. He went after them. History shows us different. However, Seville, wherever he went, he attracted a crowd. Yes, he had his teams that went with him, but for the most part, these crowds 
built around him organically and we know that other rock stars had young women who would camp out at the hotels they were staying out in an effort to try and meet and be with these rock stars so it's very very possible if not probable that Seville was experiencing something of the same thing this is how Seville ended up dodging the Claire McAlpine scandal, although it has come out in recent years that one of the men who was mentioned inside of her diary was in fact Jimmy Seville. It was stated she didn't put full names, just initials, and one of the set of initials was J.S., what is interesting of note is that this diary has since been lost to the sands of time, so whether or not Seville was actually one of the men that Claire McAlpine slept with, we really will never know. It is interesting, though, that Seville went to great lengths above and beyond anyone else involved with Top of the Pops, to assuage public opinion regarding the show, and this leads me to believe that Seville was more likely than not involved in a sexual relationship with Claire McAlpine, and he was doing his level best to make certain that, pardon the expression, none of the stink from her suicide got onto him. And he did a fairly good job about of it because after all of this happened not much else was said concerning Claire McAlpine's death or the payola at least in regards to Jimmy Seville he was able to weather the storm and in fact his public defense of both Top of the Pops and the BBC culture as a whole further helped his stock to rise within the corporation. One last bit of interesting information is that Claire McAlpine's half-brother Mark has gone on the record in the last decade to state that Jimmy Seville was actually one of the men his sister had slept with and that the police had actually questioned Seville, but he was able to dismiss the writings in her diary as the ramblings of a young woman who was lost in a world of her own while presenting himself and the BBC as saintly stale words of British society. We are going to end the show this week there. Again, I'd like to thank everyone who has jumped on board the DeathCast for my coverage of Jimmy Seville. I honestly do appreciate it. Please, again, subscribe on your favorite podcast app. Leave a five-star review. Check out the website, corpsecreekpublishing.com. Sign up for the mailing list. Consider making a donation. And if you'd like to become a monthly contributor to the show and help with its production, go to tinyurl.com backslash dcpatreon. The Deathcast is a production of Corpse Creek Publishing. Until next time, stay morbid. Caesars Sportsbook is the only sportsbook app with Caesars Rewards. 
That means win or lose, every bet brings you closer to the types of perks only Caesars can offer, like hotel stays at over 50 iconic destinations, bonus bets, daily profit boosts, tickets to the game, dining, and so much more. Whether you're a new or existing customer, Caesars Sportsbook is always rewarding. Must be 21. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Caesars Sportsbook. Don't just spectate, participate.